Today on Blue 58, Brian Gutekunst and Matt LaFleur are entering their fourth season together in 2022. Things have been pretty good so far, but how do they stack up with some of their predecessors? And how do we evaluate what comes next? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. It is mid-June. And that means it's time to start turning our attention to the 2022 season. Next week, we're going to begin diving into our position-by-position preview for the 2022 Packers. Today, though, I thought it behooved us to take a look at the guys in charge. Sure, we could take a look at Mark Murphy. We did that a while back, uh, kind of evaluating the state of the Packers after the 2021 season. I don't think anything's really changed that we need to look at overall in terms of how Murphy affects this team. Not so much for Brian Gutekunst and Matt LaFleur. We are, as I said in the intro, entering their fourth season together. And I kind of think they're at an interesting point, an, an interesting point, I should say. Looking back at how they compared to their predecessors, this is when things should be getting really good. There's really three big coaching eras you've got to look at in terms of successful times for the Packers. Thompson and McCarthy, Wolf and Holmgren, and Vince Lombardi and Vince Lombardi. He was the GM and the coach. You get it. Anyway, uh, Ted Thompson and Mike McCarthy. Year four for them was 2009. Mike McCarthy takes over in 2006, 6, 7, 8, 9. 2009, that season was pretty good overall. The Packers were really just starting to come into their own with Aaron Rodgers as their starting quarterback. That season ends with that wild game in Arizona, which was a bummer of a way to end the season. But really, I don't remember being too like worked up about it at the time because it was early in the, the Rodgers-McCarthy era. They were still coming together as a young team. They were, I don't want to say rebuilding still post-Favre, but they were kind of still rebuilding post-Favre. They were a team on the upswing. Whatever happened in 2009 was going to be a bonus as long as they got to the playoffs, and they did. If you really want to dig deeper into the Thompson-McCarthy era, you could go to year four of the Thompson-McCarthy-Rodgers era. That's 2011. They go 15-1 and that year. Aaron Rodgers wins the MVP. A really good season overall. The ending was terrible, uh, but that was a really good team. The point is things had really solidified and had come together in year four for Thompson and McCarthy. Same kind of was true for Ron Wolf and Mike Holmgren. 1995, their fourth, fourth year together, and the Packers go 11-5 and five and make it to the NFC Championship. They'd had a couple 9-7 and seven seasons previously. This was their step from, okay, we're just happy to be there in the playoffs to we can really make some noise. Of course, 1996, they win the Super Bowl, but year four was when things really started to come together for the Wolf and Holmgren Packers. Vince Lombardi, all the way back in the 1960s, year four, a phenomenal year for the Packers. 1962, that was, under Lombardi. 13-1, and one, the record that year, they won the NFL championship. This might have been Vince Lombardi's best team in Green Bay. The point is, year four is when things should be getting pretty good. However, as you've probably said to yourself by now, things are pretty substantially different for Brian Gutekunst and Matt LaFleur than any of those previous groups that we've looked at. They're certainly unique in Packers history, and there really aren't that many situations like them around the league. Coming in, they didn't have to build from the ground up. They already had an MVP caliber quarterback, albeit one who hadn't been playing at an MVP level per se in a while, but still a very, very good quarterback. Their task was more about retooling 
or continuing to build on the retool that Brian Gutekunst had already started than flat-out rebuilding. If you want to define the Gutekunst and Lafleur era, you could say it's really been more about navigating challenges than building something specifically. They had to overcome the process of a new head coach getting started with Matt LaFleur. They had to address the challenge of the end of the Aaron Rodgers era without knowing when the end really is, and they're still in the process of doing that. And I don't think you can evaluate their time together without talking about how they navigated the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't have a specific example in mind, but I think it would have been easy for a team, and I'm sure there were teams like this, to just kind of cash it in either early or part of the way through the 2020 season. Just say, it, look, it's not happening. There's just too many challenges. It's too hard to make a, make a go of it. We can't get guys to buy in with whatever protocols we've got to go through. We'll just try again next year. The Packers didn't do that, and they had a really good year in 2020. In light of those challenge, in challenges and how they've overcome them, I think their first three years are have been really better than I think anyone could have anticipated. Disappointing ends, to be sure, but overall, it's been a great run. As a result, heading into year four, they're not really in a situation where they're going to be peaking this year. They they aren't on the building track that all of these other teams were. They're kind of in a reloading year, right, wouldn't you say? They've got to overcome the loss of guys like Zadarius Smith, Billy Turner, Devontae Adams, to say the very least. They've got a bunch of new guys coming in. How do you set expectations in that situation? I don't really know. To be sure, continuing to be a competitive team, not just a competitive team, contenders, is part of that. You should expect the Packers to be contenders this year, for sure. If the Packers are not among those teams, you know, in the divisional round, really contending for a Super Bowl, the season was a failure. I don't think you can even begin to grade the season as anything other than a failure if they don't get to that point. We've talked about that the last couple of years. I think, for me, the goal at least is to get, from an evaluation standpoint, is to get to the divisional round and see where things go from there. Last year, not so great. Previously, the Packers handled the Rams in 2020 in the divisional round, made it to the NFC Championship game, and then kind of tripped over themselves, to be sure, but they were right there at the end. Same kind of happens in 2019. They handled the Seahawks that year. They're right there at the end. So beyond that, how do you set expectations for guys like Brian Gutekunst and Matt LaFleur, the two individuals other than Aaron Rodgers who have the most impact on the 2022 Packers? Let's start with Brian Gutekunst. I think there's three areas we can we can look at. Um, in terms of evaluating Brian Gutekunst and the expectations we have for him this year. Usually we do high, medium, low expectations. I don't know if you can really do that for a GM or a coach, so let's just talk about some areas that we can we can track throughout the season. Three things. First, how does he handle roster churn to fix trouble spots? I think there's three areas where the Packers still have some questions here on the defensive line at tight end and cornerback slash safety. There are some depth questions at all three of those spots. And if you want to throw a wide receiver in there too, I certainly wouldn't argue with you. So how does Brian Gutekunst handle those situations in season? You've also got to um, look at these areas, two of the three at least, as 
positions that are going to require a lot of bodies anyway. So he's going to have to be adding guys for sure on the defensive line and in the defensive backfield. How does he handle that? Second, how will he, or how has he maybe, shored up previous mistakes? Look at a guy like Josh Jackson. That was an unqualified miss as a second-round draft pick. Things did not work out in Green Bay. So how will the moves that Gutekunst made to cover for that move continue to affect the Packers? Specifically, Rasul Douglas and Eric Stokes. How will they continue to bear fruit? Right now, it looks really good. On paper, the Packers have one of, if not the best, groups of cornerbacks in the NFL. Their top three goes up against anybody. How will that continue to bear fruit as Brian Gutekunst has tried to shore up one of his previous mistakes? Something we've criticized for quite some time now, the Packers had neglected wide receiver for far too long. There was not any noteworthy reinvestment into that position after Devontae Adams in 2014, other than three, three day three picks in 2018 and Amari Rodgers in 2020, 2021, excuse me. So how will Christian Watson, Romeo Dobbs, and Amari Rodgers work to fix that? Can they fix it? Can they fix it this year, or will it take a couple of years? And of course, part of that question is Devontae Adams. However much Devontae Adams wanted to leave, was it always that way? We'll never know for sure, but I don't think that part of it is is out of the evaluation for Brian Gutekunst. If Devontae Adams goes ballistic in Las Vegas the next couple of years, I think it's fair to ding Brian Gutekunst for that a little bit. Yes, he wanted to play with Derek Carr. Yes, he wanted to be closer to family. There had to be some situation where he could have stayed. And if you want to peel back a couple layers of the onion here, he said part of his decision was Aaron Rodgers. And why was Aaron Rodgers part of that decision? Well, Aaron Rodgers wasn't sure he wanted to stay in Green Bay. And why was that? You can keep going down the rabbit hole. I think you see where I'm going with that. That leads me, of course, to Jordan Love. Here on this podcast, we've not been a big fan of that move since day one. I think that's pretty well established. And here's the part where I add the caveat that I want Jordan Love to succeed. I I hope he has a great NFL career, and I think there is a lot to like about him. I I still wouldn't have made that move. But in 2022, with how Jordan Love performs in the preseason and whatever action he gets in 2022, does that decision look better or worse? We've seen what we've seen so far. Does what we see this year change our opinion of that at all? If he looks better, okay, then how do we feel? If he looks worse than he's looked previously, well, then how do we feel? And what does Brian Gutekunst do in light of both of those situations? What do other people in Green Bay do? Aaron Rodgers, for instance, do in light of those revelations, whatever we learn. So those are the three big things, I think, for Brian Gutekunst. How does he handle the roster churn at trouble spots? How does he shore up previous mistakes? How do, how do those moves bear fruit? And what does Jordan Love look like? Does that situation look better or worse with the continued passage of time? In terms of Matt LaFleur, the situation is broadly similar. You can't just say high expectations, medium expectations, low expectations, and really have any like substantive feedback there. There's so much that we just don't know about what the Packers are doing and, and what goes on behind closed doors and what guys do and do not have control over just because of the innumerable variables there. But there are uh, are three or four things I think we can look at here. The first three are 
well, the first two in particular, have to do with the team's performance at an individual level, or at least a unit level. And one of those units is special teams. The big question there is, did he get the hire right? He's finally got Rich Bisaccia, a decorated special teams coach, to handle the Packers special teams. But Matt LaFleur has made two previous decisions as far as his special teams coordinator goes. And he is a pretty definitive 0 for 2 on that so far. Does he finally get it right with Bisaccia? We'll see. What about down roster development? The Packers haven't necessarily needed a ton of depth guys on offense in particular because they've had stars at almost every position, every position group in particular. Tight end, not so much, but um, at wide receiver, they've had Devontae Adams. At quarterback, they've had Aaron Rodgers, of course. On the offensive line, they've had David Bakhtiari and Elton Jenkins. How does the rest of the Packers roster develop outside of those guys? So the Packers had an opportunity last year to get some guys some real interesting development time with David Bakhtiari out, with Elton Jenkins out. How do those moves bear fruit? How do the Packers get guys like Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs up to speed? Can the Packers make anything out of Amari Rodgers? Can they develop Jordan Love? Your answers on those questions may vary. You may wonder whether or not we can actually get answers to them at all, given what we know about the Packers and, you know, what we can see from the outside looking in. But I think that is part of the eval for Matt LaFleur. Getting more into the team level performance, I think you have to ask when you're evaluating LaFleur, can he run it back again? Can he get the Packers back into contention for a Super Bowl? Because that is the standard. When you are in the late Rodgers era, when you have reconfigured his contract again and again and again, to, to keep him in Green Bay, to keep him happy, to, to, to put things around him. If you've got an elite quarterback, a guy who's won back-to-back MVPs now, that is the standard. You should be competing for a Super Bowl. The Packers have to at least be in the conversation, so can Matt LaFleur do that again? Of the three we've talked about so far, this is the easiest to evaluate, and I think it's the easiest, in a way, for LaFleur to meet. We'll know pretty easily pretty clearly, whether or not the Packers are in contention. We will see the answer to that for sure. Then finally, we have to ask whether or not he can get over the hump. There are, of course, other reasons, but Matt LaFleur is a not inconsiderable part of why the Packers have not been to the Super Bowl despite two 13-3 seasons, two MVP campaigns from Aaron Rodgers. LaFleur is part of that. In 2019, they got hammered pantsed, embarrassed by the San Francisco 49ers, who were an admittedly better team, but they looked utterly non-competitive against that team. Richard Sherman, as much as I dislike giving him any credit for anything, he's clearly an intelligent guy. I think it was after the, the um, it, it was around the NFC Championship, either before or after, doesn't make any 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 difference, but he was talking about how the Packers came out of their, you know, first destruction at the hands of the 49ers saying, well, we weren't ready for that game. And he's just like, you weren't ready. Like, what does that mean? You weren't ready. You you had time. You knew when the game was going to be. What does it mean you weren't ready? And now that I'm, I'm saying it out loud, I think it was after the championship game. Like, you, you weren't ready then. We got you. We beat you again now. Like, what's it going to take for you to be ready? And 
he's right. Uh, what is it? What does it take? That's on Lafleur because the Packers looked non-competitive in two games against a very good team that year. In 2020, you've got some decision-making questions. You got the two-point, uh, not the two-point conversion, the the field goal situation late in that game, deciding to kick the field goal rather than go for it on fourth down. But I don't think we can forget that Matt Lafleur was also a part of the I call it miscommunication, call it bad call at the end of the first half involving Mike Pettin and Kevin King and a certain Hail Mary, Hail Mary touchdown pass. We'll never know, but what would the call have been had Matt LaFleur not inserted himself in the play calling chain at that particular instance? In 2021, yep, Aaron Rodgers part of this too, but Matt LaFleur's vaunted offense only managed to score 10 points. Despite only allowing 13, they find themselves sitting at home watching the NFC Championship game, and then watching the Rams beat a Bengals team that the Packers had beaten earlier in the season. You shouldn't ever lose when you only give up 13. Yes, there are other factors in play here, but some of that is on Matt LaFleur. So when we look back at the end of the 2022 season, will we be able to say LaFleur took care of those issues? Everybody was ready to play. Decision-making was was on point throughout the season and in key moments. And as a result, the Packers are the 2022 NFL champions, Super Bowl champs, Green Bay Packers, Matt LaFleur, everybody else. That is certainly a possibility, but Matt LaFleur has a hand in making sure that that happens, and we'll see whether or not it does. Before we dive into the games that changed the game, I want to take a second and shout out a few Patreon supporters. Today, we're talking about RFD312, Ben Lanning, and Jeffrey Clutterbuck, each of them a patron since 2021, and we're grateful for their support. I would highly encourage you to become a patron as well. We've got some great discussions going on around the book club and a whole bunch of other things in the Power Sweeps Discord server, which is just one of a number of benefits you receive from being uh, a part of what we're doing on Patreon. So head to patreon.com slash thepowersweep. Chip in any amount you like, and uh, you will be a part of that community. And community is really the coolest part. Um, I'm really, really grateful for the community that has grown up around this podcast and around, around the site itself. Um, and I would love to have you be a part of it. So head to patreon.com slash the power sweep, contribute any monthly or yearly amount you like, and we'd be grateful to have you be a part of that community. Sound good? Good. Chapter two of the games that changed the game by Ron Jaworski focuses on the 1974 AFC championship. The Pittsburgh Steelers traveled to Oakland to take on the Raiders that day and came out with a win 24 to 13. Of course, they went on to beat the Vikings in the Super Bowl, which you hate to see, but The larger conversation here is around um, Bud Carson's cover two defense. This discussion is covered at a lot more length and a lot more depth in a book called The Last Headbangers by Kevin Cook. We have recommended it on the podcast before. And if you are interested in the story that unfolds in this chapter, I think you should take a look at this one as well. It's really an exploration of the Raiders-Steelers rivalry in the in the mid-70s to early 80s and how that kind of represented the end of an era in the NFL. The the transformation from a a brutal sport that was just a sport that guys played some of the time into a business, into a game where guys were just professional athletes, into a game dominated by science and planning and meticulous scheming and things like that. Really good book. 
highly recommend you take a look at it. This chapter gives you just a little bit of a taste of that. It also, I think, is a good example of something we talked about in last year's book, Blood, Sweat, and Chalk. To take nothing away from Bud Carson and what it took to implement a defense like the cover two at the level they did in Pittsburgh, it's really easy to look like a schematic defense when you've got Hall of Famers at every level. And not just Hall of Famers, some of the very, very best to ever play their respective positions. Incredible talent on this defense. A couple notes from throughout this chapter. The game itself is not all that interesting to me. It's the setup to the game that I think is really interesting in, in both of these chapters so far. Um, the the Steelers just did what they did, and they bludgeoned the Raiders to death. Tony Dungy makes an appearance in this chapter. I always associate him with offense because of Peyton Manning, but really he was a defensive coach. I loved his quote about proactive reaction. I won't read it here because it's a whole paragraph long thing, but he talks about how it was commonplace in Pittsburgh to to just be out there on defense, have a, a call come in. You, you go out there and line up. Here comes the offense. Oh, no. Things look completely different than what we planned for with this call. What do we do? Well, we change it, of course. We just do something different. We get into our defense, and, and we're, we're good to go there. But Dungy made it clear that there was he was not all that far removed from an era in the NFL where that was not a commonplace things to do. And it's super common, of course, today, but it's wild to think that there was a time in the NFL when defense just is, defenses just went, well, nothing we can do. We've got the call, and, um, well, it looks like they're, they're really schemed up to beat us. Oh, well. But, you know, really simple things can be revolutionary when nobody is doing them. And that, at least in part, seems to be the case in Pittsburgh. I love that Bud Carson made a point of wanting offenses to react to him not vice versa. He wanted to be the one dictating the terms in the NFL. And that is always the goal for defenses to say, this is what we're going to do. You have to figure out a way to solve our problem than trying to react to what the offense is doing. I wonder if that has become harder in the modern NFL. I don't have an answer for that one way or another. I suspect it has a little bit, but I can't say for sure. It seems, and we've, we've made this point since the draft, that the Packers are trying for this exact thing they're trying to be the ones who can set the set the terms, set the terms of engagement between the defense and offense by getting personnel that can react to anything that the the offense is doing. That will give the Packers a chance to really turn the tables there a little bit. To what extent, though, is it possible? I don't really know if you could do it like Carson and the Steelers were able to do it. I really love the anecdote about the the checks that Carson would put in for, for the Steelers. So it's really common at pretty much every level of football. We had stuff like this a couple of years ago. Shoot, when I co- was coaching seventh grade football, we would have stuff where, um, you know, they come to the line and the defense is in one thing. We would have our seventh grade quarterback look to the sideline and be like, what do we do? And we would give them an audible and, you know, hold up cards and they could they could make adjustments from there. But doing it to the extent that Carson did is truly insane. And it makes you wonder if he was a madman. So, you know, you go through your game planning all week, you get your checks on Friday. That makes sense. That's what everybody does. But then to get to Sunday and be like, actually, no, I want to do everything different. We're going to have these checks that are now the Sunday version of those checks. And then to switch back to different checks from earlier in the week's mid-game, you're asking a lot from your defense. And I think it goes back to the point I, I had about the overall talent level on the Steelers' defense at this time that they were able to do it. 
I don't have a lot to say about their individual talent. Obviously, they were great. But uh, I do love looking at pictures of Jack Lambert. He looked like an absolute barbarian out there on the field. But I think that sells him short, obviously, as we learn in this book, because he played incredibly smart and he had the athleticism to do it. He wasn't just a mauler. He was a, a true freak athlete at the position, too, especially playing at the size that he did, even at the time. This is is not really germane to the game itself, uh, but I thought it was kind of funny how careful Ron Jaworski was, not drawing any conclusions, but inserting one little nugget about the immaculate reception. If I understand things correctly, and I believe I do, under NFL rules at the time, if a defensive back touched the ball first, an offensive player couldn't then catch it and advance the ball. And there is some still substantial debate as to what exactly happened on that play. Did the Raiders defensive back touch it first? Or did the Pittsburgh Steelers wide receiver get his hands on the ball? Then it gets batted up into the air by the Raiders defensive back, and then Franco Harris catches it, and the rest is history. Jaworski says, quote, Raiders defensive back Jack Tatum got in front of Terry Bradshaw's desperation pass. The ball caromed right into the arms of a happily surprised Harris, who was behind the action, end quote. Love how he constructs that. It is not even technically accurate. It is... It is specifically accurate. It is what happened. The ball caromed into Franco Harris's arms after Jack Tatum got in front of the pass. Did Tatum touch the ball first, though? Jaworski doesn't say. A little note in here about how the cover two was originally a run defense. Jaworski opens the chapter pretty much talking about how, how it was developed to, to help stop the run, but became famous for shutting down the pass. But in this game, the 1974 AFC Championship game, Oakland goes for 21 carries, Attempts 21 carries. They gain just 29 yards. Do not score a touchdown on the ground. In light of everything we've learned in this chapter, I think it would have been highly surprising if Minnesota would have gone on to win the Super Bowl against Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's defense was incredibly smart and incredibly talented, and Bud Carson obviously was incredibly smart too. In Minnesota, Bud Grant's offenses were notoriously simple. You can read some anecdotes about the Kansas City Chiefs like all but laughing when they're coming to the line of scrimmage because they're basically calling out the plays that Minnesota is going to run and all but embarrassing the Vikings in the process. Kind of caveman football. And it's very clear reading this chapter that the Pittsburgh Steelers were not playing caveman football with, uh, with the cover two in 1974. That's all I've got for you in this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, I hope you would do me the favor of sharing it with someone else that you would think would enjoy it as well. That's going to help more people find the show. It is going to get more people involved in this conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.